0: The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at redeemerrva.org.
1: In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretations, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah. Mishael and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king. interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet "'partly of iron and partly of clay. "'As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, "'and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay "'and broke them into pieces. "'Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold "'all together were broken in pieces "'and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. "'And the wind carried them away "'so that not a trace of them could be found.' But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those things, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery and the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The word of the Lord.
0: Friends, please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 to 44. That's on page 827 of your Pew Bibles. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Jesus said to them, Have you ever read in the scriptures? Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, for those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Uh, now, you should know if you're vis- new and visiting for the first time, we don't always do Scripture readings quite that long. Uh, well done, Lane. Um, and this is service number two, so Lane's done that twice. It's very impressive. Um, One thing you should know, though, is that the way we understand the reading of God's Word in the context of a public worship service uh, in a church like this is that Scripture reading is not just like the tee-up for the sermon, uh, but it's actually an act of worship in and of itself. And so if you had to choose between Scripture reading and a sermon and you could only do one, you would choose Scripture reading because that's essential to the worship of God's people. Uh, so thank you for the patience that you just demonstrated in listening to a very long reading. We're not going to talk about that entire chapter, but we are going to mention a few things. Now, let me give us just a few words of orientation here. We as a church are in the season of the church are called Ordinary Time, uh, in which we join with the church of Jesus around the world and throughout history in giving ourselves to answering the question, what does it mean for us to live faithfully in the simple, ordinary, mundane Places of our lives, And true to form, as we do every week, we take this question to God's Word in the Christian Bible, and this fall we're going specifically to the Old Testament book of Daniel, where we find these fascinating stories of God's people living as believers in the midst of a pagan and pluralistic society, much like the society in which we dwell here in the city of Richmond in 2022. Now, last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 1, and we talked about navigating cultural assimilation— Uh, And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you're welcome to go online and and to catch up if you like. Today, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. Let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, some of you will know this, but even though our city, sorry, even though our family lives uh, here in the city of Richmond, just 2.4 miles from here. It's a very quick bike ride. Um, I actually grew up in the country and not the city. I'm still a country boy at heart, and Richmond has not beat that out of me just yet. Um, I love the city. I'm glad that we live here in the city, but I'm still kind of a country person at heart. And one of my favorite things about growing up in the country was, please don't make fun of me, playing in the woods. Okay? And if you did not grow up in the country, that sounds like a very strange thing to say. To a city person, that sounds like, I love playing in traffic. It's like, sounds a little dangerous, maybe a little weird. But this is my mother's default assignment whenever me and my three siblings were roughhousing too much inside and things got out of hand, she would yell at us, Go play in the woods! And sometimes this meant games of hide-and-go-seek. Sometimes it meant uh, hunting squirrels with slingshots. Different story for a different day. Uh, But also, more often than not, meant building forts. And I don't know how long it's been since you last built a really good fort, uh, but there's something immensely satisfying about that. And uh, let me assure you, the architects who built the Sistine Chapel and the Taj Mahal and the Eiffel Tower, like, they had nothing on us. Uh, We had sketches, we had diagrams to scale, uh, we had, you know, long searches for the perfect branches and rocks and leaves, and, and there were some really great masterpieces constructed in the woods behind Pippin Lane in Charlottesville in the 1980s. Now, once your fort is built, what do you have to do with your fort? You must defend it, Right? Forts are meant to be defended. And so after fort building comes fort defending, and that means that we saw all other neighborhood kids as invading Visigoths, and we had to defend our fort from them. And this instinct that I'm kind of circling around to build something and then to defend it, that actually never goes away as we grow up. It just morphs into other more sophisticated shapes. We don't stop building forts. We just become more sophisticated about our fort building. And every man who stains his back deck, and every woman who picks out light, fi- light, light fixtures, and every college student who thinks they're being creative by lofting their bed and putting their desk underneath, you're not being that creative. We've all done this. Um, and, uh, and every person who repaints their apartment, all of us are, are actually building we love building things. And we don't just build homes and redecorate dorm rooms. We also build careers, don't we? And lifestyles and reputations. I was uh, walking through a store the other day and there was um, like a framed quote in one of the aisles that you could buy for like fourteen ninety nine. And the quote was this. If you don't build your dreams, somebody else will hire you to build theirs. And I read that and I thought, oh, doesn't that so perfectly encapsulate like something about our moment in history right now? Because this quote is based on the underlying assumption that the most important thing that any of us could do would be to build our dreams, right? And that if you're not careful, then you're going to find yourself conscripted into somebody else's dream, and that would be a great tragedy. Instead, we should all individually focus on building our own dreams. And that, like, instinct that all of us, I'm sure, can relate to in one way or another. Do you know the Bible actually has a lot to say about that building, that dream-building instinct? Just think about this. Think about the story of the Bible. It begins in creation, where we are introduced to God as the builder, the consummate builder, the great architect. And human beings are introduced as these kind of vice architects, commissioned to build culture and civilization and society, imaging God, who is the great builder. But then the fall into sin kind of distorts this building, and rather than building the kingdom of God, humans instead opt to build a kingdom for themselves, what St. Augustine would later call the kingdom of man. We see this in the Tower of Babel. We see it in Pharaoh, who rules over Egypt. We see it in Herod, uh, who's king over uh, the Jews in Jerusalem. We see it in Caesar over Rome, and for our purposes today, we see it in King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But when we're introduced to Jesus in the biblical story, we meet a very different kind of builder who constructs no palaces and no cities, but who rather builds his kingdom through healing the sick, feeding the hungry, and protecting the weak. And the new kingdom that Jesus came to build and establish will one day culminate in a new city. A new city will be built, but not by humanity, built by God himself. This is the story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. And it's into that story of building that we have our text in Daniel chapter 2. And I won't say everything about what happens in this text; it's too long. But I will just mention a few things. Here's kind of your brief summary: uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who rules over the empire of Babylon, has a dream. And it's unclear from the text whether he doesn't remember his dream or he just doesn't want to talk about the dream. But one of those two things is true. Um, and if you think to yourself, "Like that would be weird that he maybe didn't remember it," no, 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 no. This has all happened to us. You remember that experience where you woke up in the middle of the night or early in the morning? and you were absolutely panicked, and your heart was beating, and you were sweating, and you were breathing heavy, and you were absolutely terrified, and you didn't know why. Yeah? Maybe that's what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe he knows that he had a terrifying dream, but he can't remember it. Or, and probably more likely, he remembers the dream, but it's so disturbing, he can't bring himself to talk about it. And so he calls for his kind of like educated government leaders to come and to tell him what the dream is and then interpret it for him. And this, in this day and age, would have been very, very normal. Dream interpretation for kings was like a very, like that's that's a viable career path in the empire of Babylon in 6th century B.C. And Daniel and all of his friends, these refugees from Jerusalem, and all of these elite Babylonians have all been trained for years in dream interpretation. There's only one problem. You have to know the dream first in order to interpret it. So this request that Nebuchadnezzar is making to all of these people is unable to be fulfilled. And this makes him very angry, as, you know, kings tend to get angry. And he decrees that they're all going to be executed. So Daniel's going about his business, and he finds out that he is sentenced for educate, for a execution. It's a very bad day at work for Daniel, right? So he panics, sort of, and uh, it's a crisis. And so he goes to the guy who's kind of immediately his, you know, his direct report, his, his immediate supervisor, and he says, like, what's the problem? He finds out. He gets a little bit more time. And then, very interesting, he goes to his friends and he calls them all to prayer. And this isn't the main point of the story, and so it's not going to be the main point of the sermon, But it's worth pausing for just a moment and noting this. When faced with a crisis, Daniel's first instinct is to gather his friends together for prayer. And I wonder if we would handle the crises in our lives with just a bit more wisdom if that was our instinct as well. When faced with a crisis, you immediately gather with your brothers and sisters in the church for prayer. And some of you have enough friends in the church, like here at Redeemer, in order to do that, and some of you are too new to have that yet, which is why we have small groups in our church, so that there is a designated place for you to gather with other people to bring the crises of your day to the table with them so that you may pray with and for each other whenever you are faced with something that is too big for you to manage. So Daniel gathers his friends, they pray together, and God answers the prayer. He gives Daniel the interpretation to the vision, and he's able to know and interpret the dream. And with the rest of our time in the sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the dream, and we're going to interpret it not only for Daniel's time and King Nebuchadnezzar's time in 6th century BC, but also for our own time, because there is goodness here that will help us navigate our own moment in history here in the city of Richmond in your individual life. And as we talk about this, we're going to look uh, at two kind of different angles. We're going to look at loving our kingdoms, and then we're going to contemplate fearing our own fragility. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, you're welcome to pull out a pen and kind of jot these down if you like. Loving our kingdoms and fearing our fragility, okay? I'm going to read uh, three verses for you, verses 31, 32, and 33. This is Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of this image was fi- of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its middle and thighs were bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, who is Daniel talking to? Nebuchadnezzar, at this time in history, most powerful person in the world, bar none. And if you just think of all of human history, probably in the top 20. I mean, it might go like Jeff Bezos and then Nebuchadnezzar. So he's up there. Um, in the words of Ron Burgundy, like, he's kind of a big deal. So um, Daniel's talking. I mean, he's, he's speaking truth to power. That's kind of what this moment is. And uh, this dream uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has, it actually has a lot to do with his own personal life because as we'll see in Daniel chapter 3, just one chapter later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to go ahead and build a giant image of himself, a giant statue, and then call the entire empire to, like, bow down and worship of it. So, if you think this guy has, like, a bit of an ego trip, like, it's already in the works. And so, the idea that he would have a dream about this and then the statue be crushed, this is terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar. And these different sections of the image or of the statue that are named so sorry… Um, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the feet made of iron and clay. These represent various empires that are going to rise and fall throughout history. And here we have to be careful because it would actually be a grave mistake for us to waste time and energy trying to match different sections of the statue and the dream to different great empires that have already risen and fallen within human history. And it would be a waste of time to do that, not because we couldn't do it. We could. We could make a good case for like, maybe the bronze is like the Greek empire, maybe the feet are like the Roman, like we, we, could, we could do that and it would be moderately accurate, but it wouldn't be the point. It would miss the point of the dream. So let's not do that. What we see first in these images are all the ways that Nebuchadnezzar and actually you and I seek to build our own kingdoms. And if you could just reflect with me for a moment, you you might realize that you and I actually do this in, in a variety of ways because we never stop fort building. It just takes on more sophisticated shapes. It takes on the shape of career. Why do you go to school? We go to school to get a good internship. Why do you get an internship? Well, to get a good job. Why do you get that job? Because that job's going to lead to a better job, right? And then once you get that perfect job, you are going to be fulfilled in your work and your life will have meaning because of the impact that you've made on the world, right? This is your career. This is the kingdom of your career that you are actively building right now. What about money? whether it's your bank account or investment portfolios or the retirement you're saving for or your ability to fund your Roth IRA to the max each year or your ability to plan your 529 plans for kids or maybe even grandkids, whether it's something as simple and basic as saving money so you can go out to eat next week or as complex as saving for like the future well-being of third and fourth generations below you. Either way, there is a kind of building that is happening as we are
1: accruing
0: resources to use for ourselves and for the people we care about. It's the kingdom of money. But some of us, that feels like a little bit crass, and you think, I would never do something like that. Ah, so let's talk about the family kingdom. Let's talk about the healthy, happy home with beautiful, smart, athletic, promising children who all have straight teeth, right? Let's talk about the family beach picture where you're all wearing white, standing on the shores of the Outer Banks. If you think I'm being cruel and making fun of you, I'm not. I'm talking about my family, okay? Let's talk about the self-righteous kingdom where you are informed and you care about all of the right issues. You're informed about all the right issues. You hold the proper viewpoint on all right issues. And people know that you are the right kind of person on all of the issues. You are never wrong or ignorant about anything. And you are presenting yourself to the world as intelligent and good. Right? This is the self-righteous kingdom. And that feels a little bit highbrow for some of us, maybe a little bit overly intellectual. So let's talk about something a little bit more basic, the body kingdom. So I was in Gold's Gym in Willow Lawn the other day and there was a poster on the wall that was new. I hadn't either, I hadn't seen it before or it was brand new. And it had four words on it. Squat, selfie, post, post, repeat. Some of you don't know. Ask the person next to you what that means. Um, And I I just thought, that's so funny. Like, that, we're just, are we really that out there right now? We're really, like, we're just going to say it, isn't it? Like, that's why we're working out. It's that. It's this body image kingdom using the right combination of diet and exercise to present the right kind of, like, sexualized version of ourselves to the world, right? Or what about the experiences kingdom? living your best life now, fun, exciting, interesting, adventurous. If you're this kind of person, you think of things like boredom and monotony and predictability as enemies to be defeated, right? And your life is like just a series of mountaintop peaks from one experience to another. Y'all, we could keep going, but we're not going to because there's a litmus test that we all have to take in order to diagnose this kind of kingdom building within us. And you know what it is? Fear. Fear. Nebuchadnezzar has built an empire and he is terrified of losing it. That's why he's up. I mean, who should be sleeping peacefully? The king of the world. And yet he's up losing sleep, scared because he had a dream about losing it all. So I ask you, what are you fearful of losing? What are you most afraid of not having or not experiencing or of losing? You see, we not only love our kingdoms, we fear the fragility of our kingdoms. I'm going to read two more verses, verses 34 and 35. Daniel, again, is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. So, a number of years ago, uh, there was a partial statue that was found in Egypt, and to the best of our knowledge, is a statue that depicts uh, a pharaoh, Ramses II, and in Greek, that name Ramses is actually rendered Ozymandias, and did you know that there's a poem actually written about this very particular famous king, emperor, over the Egyptian empire, and it's written by Percy Shelley. And the words at the very, I won't read the whole poem, but the words at the end go something like this and has everything to do with what Daniel just said to King Nebuchadnezzar. The words go, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. In other words, check me out. I have absolutely everything, God of the world. But after I'm gone, it's all done, and there's nothing left but sand and dust. What Daniel has just said to Nebuchadnezzar is this whole thing that you're building, like it's all gonna shatter, it's fragile, it's all gonna fall apart. And as we think about that, we might just take a moment to then reflect on our own kingdom building and reflect on the fear that we have about losing some of the things that we care about the most and just take a moment to recognize how fragile some of these things actually are. Just think about this. Think about the fragile political kingdom. I don't know, I don't presume to know kind of where everybody is politically, uh, whether you're like left, right, or just kind of apathetic and you don't care and you're over it all. Um, But wherever you are on that, like it's not gonna last, y'all. Every side of this, of these issues is ruled by fear, and fear leads to anger. So if you want to understand the anger and the political outrage in our public discourse in this current moment, what you have to understand is there is a water table of fear underneath all of it, and you don't have to drill down very far until you hit it. Let's think about the fragility of our career kingdoms. In order to get ahead, what do you have to do? You've got to view other people as competitors, Right? And you have to do what? You have to beat them in order to win, which means if you succeed in doing that and you make it all the way to the top, you know what you have taught and liturgized and formed yourself to view? is to view other people as threats. That's gonna be a miserable existence to be on top. Knowing in the back of your mind, everybody's gunning for you. This is why so many people that make it to positions of kind of top tier leadership live their lives in fear because they spent their entire career competing against other people. And they know, they just know, even if they're wrong, that people are out to get them and knock them off their perch. Let's think about the fragile money kingdom. Rockefeller, when he was the richest uh, man in the world, was asked, how much money is enough? You know what he said? It's very famous. Just a little bit more. And that was always the answer. Just a little bit more. And I have known friends who, over the course of their lives, have actually experienced tremendous success in their careers that has led to, like, huge economic gains for them. And when they were younger, they would say things like, like, if I ever make a lot of money, I'm not going to get more stuff. Like, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to be altruistic. I'm going to help. But the problem is, is that the more we earn and the more we gain and the more resources we accrue, our appetites just kind of increase right along with it, right? And so... We tend to think to ourselves, well, if I had more, then I would be more generous, when, in fact, the data and all the statistical research on who gives, like generously, to other people says exactly the opposite. People that have more tend to give less. Think about the fragile family kingdom. Some of you maybe haven't learned this, and so you, maybe you need to hear it right now, and I'm so sorry to burst your bubble, but you cannot control your family members. Have you learned this? You cannot control your family. And so all of your attempts to construct this like ideal family, this perfect family, this like harmonious home that is just going to like thrive and flourish and everything's going to be great. You know who's going to ruin it for you? Your family. (laughs) Let's talk about the fragile self-righteous kingdom. You are going to have to continually reinvent yourself to match whatever the current social social virtues are. And those are going to change on you, aren't they? So whatever you embody and proclaim and demonstrate to the world that you believe and have always believed and hold so dear right now in 20 years, that social virtue is going to be a social sin. And your digital record is going to follow you. Jeff Bezos has made sure of that. (laughs) Which means that this lifetime of being the righteous person, the right person, who's not ignorant and not wrong on any issue, it's going to break on you. It's going to shatter on you. Let's talk about the fragile experiences kingdom. You're going to have to keep upping the ante all throughout your life. According to the law of diminishing returns, every next good experience is going to be just a little bit less enjoyable than the experience before it. Which means the older you get and the longer you live, the bigger and more amazing experiences you're going to have to have in order to feel that same level of pressure, uh, pleasure. According to a friend of mine, he said this years ago, he said, as we grow older, we just need spicier food and stronger pornography. And that's a little bit disturbing, but just let that sink in. The idea is your tastes are going to change as you grow. And you're going to need bigger and bigger stuff in order to feel the same level of happiness. It's a fragile kingdom. And then lastly, we might talk about the body, and we don't have to say much about that because you're going to get old. And if you don't know that yet, please hear me. It's not going to last now, all of this might sound very depressing at this point, but there's actually something very interesting happening here. Listen if you can. Dream interpretation is part of what Daniel and his friends have been trained to do by their Babylonian assimilation program. They are supposed to be experts at this. And so what we see happening in this part of the story, as Daniel is speaking truth to power and telling King Nebuchadnezzar, everything you've built is actually fragile and it's going to shatter and fall and collapse and be blown away and not you know, exist anymore there's actually something happening here where we see that a society's expressed good is not able to be met by its practices and its program. In other words, Babylon can't deliver on the promise of Babylon. Babylonian culture can't deliver on its own promise. In order for Babylon to work the way Babylon says it must work, it must be able to interpret the king's dreams and those interpretations are going to have to work out positively for the king and for Babylon. But there's a dual problem in the story. The Babylonians can't interpret the dream and then even when they do hear the interpretation, it's bad news. And so what we see is that in order for Babylon to actually work here in this moment, in this story, the leaders of Babylon are going to need wisdom from God, from outside of Babylon. In other words no matter what kingdom you build, that kingdom is not going to be able to deliver on its own promise. And so whether it's the kingdom of politics or career or money or family or self-righteousness or your body or experiences, none of those kingdoms can give you what they say they're going to give you. Your kingdom cannot deliver on its own promise. And y'all, we are living in an age that demonstrates this so profoundly because our secular materialist humanist society wants the social ethics of the Christian faith, things like human dignity and equality and justice for the poor and the oppressed without the theology and the beliefs of the church that ground all of those concepts in the imago Dei, the image of God and the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And so our society is deep into this long social experiment of seeing if you can have this social ethics of the Christian faith without Jesus. And it's not working. And this is why secular materialist humanism cannot deliver on its promise. Because it has no foundation. Because it is built on feet of clay. And this shows us that every society and culture, no matter what it professes to believe, needs the wisdom of God. The message to Nebuchadnezzar is the same message to us. Like, your kingdom is not going to last. It's going to shatter. Everything you've built for yourself is going to fall apart because your feet are made of clay. You have no foundation. Now, listen if you can. There are a number of of little easy-to-miss details in this story that actually make all the difference and actually make it, listen if you can, not a depressing story that's just bad news for your own kingdom but actually a story of hope that leaves us with tremendous good news about somebody else's kingdom. Verse verse 35, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. If you have your liturgy with you, if you could turn and look at the cover art on the front, if you wondered why did we put a mountain on the front cover, it's from the poetic imagery of this verse. The stone strikes the image, becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Listen if you can. According to the story of the Bible from beginning to end, God himself is the foundation, and this imagery is seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus, who calls himself the stone or the rock upon which people are called to build themselves. And isn't it interesting that in this story, in Daniel chapter 2, rock is the least valuable substance of all the substances that are used, right? Like gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, all of those are more costly and valuable than a rock than stone, right? And yet it's the least valuable substance that ends up conquering the entire thing. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says things like in our gospel lesson earlier, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we didn't read Matthew chapter seven, but I almost had us read that one too in which Jesus tells a story about the man who builds his house on sand and a different man who builds his house on the rock. Jesus is the rock, and Jesus is the one who, counterintuitively, does not arrive on the scene on planet Earth and immediately start crushing other people's kingdoms with a hammer. No. Jesus arrives as the rock, who then himself is crushed. And just as King Nebuchadnezzar threatened to have Daniel and all his friends torn apart limb from limb. Jesus himself becomes the one who is torn apart limb from limb, who is very small and very weak and seemingly easily defeated, so easy to dismiss. What is Jesus compared to career and money and family and experiences and politics and Babylon and the United States and Rome and Greece? You could go on and on. What is Jesus compared to the power and the intrigue and the allure of all of those kingdoms. And yet, the story of the Bible and the promise of this text is that that small, insignificant, easy to dismiss, seemingly easy to defeat kingdom is actually the one that's going to win in the end. The city of God wins in the end. Verse 44, in those days and of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. For the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament and today, the posture of being a God follower in whatever city and age and time that you live in, including Richmond in 2022, is to be the kind of person who is not seeking to build your own kingdom in this moment for yourself but rather is building your life upon the rock who is Jesus and has eyes fixed towards the horizon looking for the kingdom that God himself is building. In Hebrews chapter 11, we take up these words where it says, looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. It is not a stray detail that the rock in Daniel chapter 2 is not carved by human hands because that is a powerful reminder to all of us that you and I don't go from personal kingdom building to God kingdom building. The invitation, this is wonderful good news, is not to go build the kingdom of God. You can't, and you don't have to. God himself is building his own kingdom. And the invitation for Daniel in the story, and for us in our moment, is to be faithfully present To the kingdom of God as God builds his own kingdom, and to actually resist the temptation to build our own personal and private kingdoms. Uh, James Davidson Hunter puts it this way faithful presence means that we are to be fully present to each other within the community of faith, and fully present to those who are not, whether within the community of believers or among those outside the church. We must imitate our creator and redeemer, pursuing each other, identifying with each other, and directing our lives towards the flourishing of each other through sacrificial love. You and I cannot build the kingdom of God, but we can be faithfully present to the kingdom of God, even in the kingdom of man, even in our time. And we do this when we trust the rock, when we build our lives upon Jesus. And so as we conclude, just think about some of the ways that you might trust the rock in all these places of former kingdom building. Trusting the rock in your own home, knowing that your house and your neighborhood are not your kingdom. Y'all, there are good reasons to live in the countryside. Fleeing the city is not one of them. There are good reasons to live in the suburbs. Fleeing the city is not one of them. Make your home, your physical house, not talking about your metaphorical home. I mean like your house, the place where you live. Make your home and your neighborhood amongst people who do not believe in God, amongst non-Christians. Do not flee from them. Do not move away from your non-Christian roommates or neighbors. Trust the rock in your home and be faithfully present in your home. Trust the rock in your work. Your work is not your kingdom. Does that mean that all of your work is just a waste of time unless you're serving in like vocational ministry? No, you are not polishing brass on the Titanic. This is your, your secular work is not a waste of time. Daniel himself, not in vocational ministry. He was faithful to God while serving the Babylonian empire, and you too may be faithful to God while you are serving here in the city of Richmond in any manner of capacity. You are laboring for the city of God, even in the city of man. You are laboring for the kingdom of God, even in the empires of this world. So go to class and study hard. And don't quit your secular job. Trust the rock in your home. Trust the rock in your work. Trust the rock in your money. Y'all, your money is not your kingdom and it is not for your kingdom. Don't put your resources into personal empire building, but rather put your resources into the welfare of your neighbors and city. And if that sounds strange, it is. It is very strange. Almost nobody does this. The purpose of the resources that God has given you is to demonstrate by the way you use those resources, in particular your money, that you are building your life on Jesus. And this might take all kinds of different forms. You might give money to your neighbors. You might give money to city projects. You might give money to your church who is helping you seek the welfare of your neighbors and of your city. One of the things that you might do actually coming out of this is go onto Redeemer's website and check out our Justice and Mercy Partners. This is part of how we are seeking as a community the welfare of the city of Richmond here in our time. Trust the rock in your home, trust the rock in your work, trust the rock in your money, trust the rock with your body, with your reputation, with your family, with your experiences. All of these can become places where you are faithfully present to the kingdom of God, even while you're living in the kingdom of man. And you do this by building your life on Jesus and nowhere else. You're a human being, which means you are a builder and everyone feels the need feels the need to build something. But you don't have to build your own fort and protect your own fort. Trust the rock and build your life on the rock. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now in this moment, you would reveal to us, to our hearts and our minds, the ways in which we are tempted to build our own little kingdoms. And would you help us to surrender those and instead choose faithful presence and to build our lives on you. In your name we pray, amen.